Please turn in your Bibles this morning to James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and we're reading the first 12 verses together, and you'll find it on page 1883 in the Church Bible. For those watching from home, either live this morning or perhaps later in the week here in the U.S. or overseas, thank you for being with us. And it would be helpful for you to know that on a Sunday morning, please have your Bible, have it open, possibly something to write with to take notes and follow along with us here live in the main sanctuary. Most of you are aware that over these last few weeks in January of 2023, we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament epistle of James. And today we come to one of the most practical, challenging, and to some extent disturbing passages in the book of James. And disturbing in the sense that it will challenge us away from apathy and indifference. And that's typical of James. He is immensely uh, both challenging and yet comforting all at the same time. So that's where we'll be going. And there is so much packed into chapters 1 to 12. We'll do the first few verses this week and the rest of these 12 verses next Sunday as well. So let's begin James 3 verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them a bears, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Amen, and we trust that God will indeed bless to us this reading from his word. Last Sunday morning, we gave out, uh, for the first time, bookmarks to go along with this study in James. Inquire, thank you for picking up your bookmarks this week. And on the front page is a list of Sundays and a passage of scripture. And then on the back page, there are several questions to ask 
as we continue on into a new year in terms of your walk with Christ in 2023. And I'm highlighting this because some of you picked them up last Sunday on your way in. We ran out, in fact, and you may not have had an opportunity to pick one up. And the idea is that looking at a given Sunday, you'll take the bookmark home, put it in your Bible, use it in your daily prayer life. Because what you will discover is the more time you spend with a passage of Scripture, the more it speaks into your life. And so as an entire congregation, spending our devotional time between one Sunday to another as an entire congregation will make a difference to us. So please, if you didn't pick one up this morning, there are a few there and they're in various places around the building. Please pick one up and make use of our bookmark. Now, having said all of that, I have some wonderful news for you this morning. Well, wonderful may be stretching it a little once I tell you what it is. And it's not spectacular, wonderful, life-changing, but it is very important news. And it's this, that our new building passed their fire safety inspection this last week. Now, the reason for the slightly muted applause is it's a step in the right direction, but we have several more hurdles to go. But what it does mean is this. We can begin moving furniture into a variety of places in our new building. And that's a very important step. Now, our certificate of occupancy has a little while to go, but we're heading in that direction. We're heading in that direction in many ways thanks to you. Because over the last three or four years, when we started putting our campus redevelopment together, you were praying and giving and doing so consistently and sacrificially. And the second phase of our campaign is coming up later in the spring, and we'll tell you about that when we get there. But rejoice that we've taken a step in the right direction. But when our campus redevelopment started, it started not with construction, but with demolition. And this morning, as we come to the epistle of James, as I was reading it and studying it this past week, I could see again and again that simple parallel that before you build something new, before you move into achieving that dream and de-belonging of your heart for a new facility, whether it be a home or for us, an extension of our church facilities, demolition often has to, excuse me, Demolition has to occur first. And that often happens in our life, spiritually speaking, when God begins to demolish old attitudes, thoughts, patterns of behavior, desires, motivations, and he tears them down in order to clear the ground and begin to shape and form and fashion us into A people who look like and seek to follow Christ in every aspect of their lives. And that's exactly where James is going. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that James talked about with a new relationship with Christ, 
New belief results in new behavior. Your walk must equal your talk. And it's not enough to turn up Sunday morning, enjoy a worship service, and it makes no difference in your life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And that's why James is so popular as an epistle. It challenges and forces us into asking those fearless searching questions of where am I in my walk with Christ? And over the last couple of Sundays, we've been asking this question towards the end of our study time. Who are you willing to be? And what are you willing to do to be the person God is calling you to be? And we're about to see that in several aspects of our life as we come into chapter 3. And by this, I'm asking this. Who are you willing to be? Are you willing to be Christ-like in your interaction with those you love the most? Husband, wife, children. And sadly, when we interact with those who we love the most, our guard is down. We're not putting on a mask. We're just being ourselves. And sometimes God needs to challenge us in that very area to say, wait a minute. Are you willing to be the man or woman I'm calling you to be in that toughest of place? Because in public, when we're around others, people we like, it's so easy to wear a mask. And James is saying, hold on a second. Who you are privately and who you are publicly needs to be the same person. Are you being Christ-like? In other words, who are you willing to be? What And what are you willing to do? In other words, are you willing to make prayer, holiness, purity, a priority in your life? Are you seeking after transparency and accountability, changing your personality, changing your character? And that's why James helps us with some of those fearless searching questions that cause us to dig deep. And so this morning, we begin chapter 3, and it reads, of course, as you know, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, let me pause right there. And some of you are already saying, Oh, Richard, thank you. I thought this passage was talking to me, but it's actually talking to teachers. And I'm not a teacher, so I'm okay this morning. I can relax a little. Well, hold on a second. We heard it in Brian's introduction to his prayer. That teacher is much broader than you might think. Now, there are, and this is often the case in Scripture, a primary and a secondary application. And the primary application, of course, is to teachers. In fact, in Ephesians 4, 11, Apostle Paul writes, Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And they are often called officers or positions in the church and we understand that and teachers come into that but notice what else Paul says excuse me what James says not many of you should presume to be teachers my brothers now as we go through this verse let me unpack it for you and I promise we will get to teachers but before we get there there's a qualifying word in there not many of you should what Presume to be teachers. And presumption can at times be seriously unhealthy. 
And I often think of presumption going hand in glove with ambition. About two and a half, three years ago, we spent probably two or three months in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I tried to make the point then that meekness and weakness are not the same thing. Those who are genuinely meek are usually, in my experience, people who are confident in themselves. And there is a core strength of belief in who they are and what they want to accomplish. And in fact, they are so confident in themselves, they are willing to move with consensus and do so with humility. Very little overriding autocratic ambition there. Meekness and weakness, not the same thing. But when it comes to ambition... Ambition itself can be a very healthy process. If you've ever mixed in the world of elite athletes who end up going to the Olympic Games, they will tell you that their coaches have instilled in them a can-do attitude. They have ambition. They are hopeful that they can push themselves and push themselves and train and work hard to achieve at the Olympics. And that is a remarkable thing to achieve. But when ambition becomes ugly, it can often wound and hurt those around it. And so when James is talking about presumption, in my mind I'm going to ambition, an ambition to succeed, an ambition to be a teacher, presuming that you can fulfill that role. Please encourage, let me encourage you to be careful. Sadly, When I have watched ambition that gets out of control, it often results in this. Excuse me. My first point was this. Do not make important decisions without others. Both in a working environment, head of a department, participating in a team, or at home. Move with consensus. Interact with others, get a sense of what's what, rather than making important decisions without others. Secondly, ask the question, has God called me to this, or am I driven to succeed? In other words, if I'm offered a new job, and it may mean moving home to a new state, settling into a new community, those can be very exciting moments in the, the life of a person. But at the same time, we're asking, has God called me to this? Or is this something I want to do and I'm asking his blessing on what I want to do already? Thirdly, have I fully surrendered this desire to the Lord? And that's hard for those of us who are A-type personalities. When the day is useless, unless you have produced, unless you've conquered, unless you've achieved, and you run so hard in order to do so, have I fully surrendered this desire to the Lord? And notice this, am I resorting to human methods to accomplish God's plan? Am I bringing emotional pressure to bear? Am I maneuvering and cajoling 
involved in shenanigans in order to get what I want rather than fully surrender it and let him accomplish what he wants and for me to be satisfied and content in the midst of all that he is doing? Be careful when ambition becomes that overriding factor. Be careful when accomplishments alone bring great satisfaction. Not the end product that benefits others, serves a community, impacts lives. But satisfaction in and of itself. Be careful. And as ambition goes on, what we often find is that driven people may possess limited or underdeveloped people skills. And there is often a trail of bodies in their wake. You may end up achieving what you want, but hurting and wounding and debilitating so many. Often those who are driven so hard, they see people as participating in a competition and are to be beaten. Again, it's not the end result. It's not the end product. It is that I have beaten the competition. Please be so careful. And again, it's that thought of who are you willing to be? What are you willing to do? Sit back in a Christ-like, prayerful, trusting manner. Yes, and let the Lord determine the outcome. And that is not easy, but it's what we're called to. Sometimes those with that driving, overwhelming ambition possess volcanic anger. Ever found yourself looking at a computer screen and raging at an inanimate object? Why will this machine not do what it was designed to do? For goodness sake, these engineers had no idea what they were doing. Wanting to drop kick it off the top of a building? Yes. Someone cuts you off in traffic? Thanks, jerk. And stronger. Anger at things we can't control simply in order to succeed. Be careful when ambition begins to spiral out of control. And finally, one of the telltale signs is that those of us with driving ambitions often find ourselves abnormally busy and have little time for anyone or anything else other than what we're focused on. James is challenging and says, not many of us should presume to be teachers, my brothers. And all of that is wrapped up in presumption. And when we say teachers, and you are thinking, well, thank goodness I'm not. Let me ask you this. Do you have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren? And if you have, you probably teach them and model for them Christian values and standards. You teach them to say yes ma'am and yes sir. You teach them manners at the dinner table. You teach them how to read at night when you tuck them into bed. You teach them how to pray when you pray for them. You model faith and patience and perseverance and prayer for them. You are teaching each time they are around. Yesterday someone sent me a two-minute video clip 
of a 14-month-year-old watching television and a fitness instructor, instructor was on the screen and the 14-month, complete with diaper and t-shirt, was lifting up invisible weights and copying what was happening on screen and then would put the weights down and yeah, and then on to the next exercise and off this 14-month-year-old would go copying and learning what they were watching children and grandchildren do exactly the same you are teaching and modeling and it may be you are saying well Richard I don't have any children or grandchildren but it could be in your place of work you are demonstrating best practices for colleagues you are teaching younger colleagues about contracts And when to return telephones and how to respond in email, how to conduct meetings and engage with clients. And so it continues. You are teaching by who you are. And James is saying, be careful, because those who touch, teach, will be judged more strictly. And I suspect some of you reading that are already saying, now Richard, slow down a minute here. Help me understand this. Why is James talking about judgment here? Richard, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say, and I'm sure you've presented the gospel in this way, that when a person is exposed to the love and grace of God and begins to realize the profundity of that love and the horror of their own sin. That in a moment of deep, profound repentance and sorrow and regret, you express prayerfully your sorrow to to Him who has loved you since before the beginning of all time and will love you eternally. So much so that Christ went to the cross to die for you. And Richard, did he not die for our sins? Did he not forgive us for our sins at that moment of commitment when we entered into a relationship with him? Did he not cleanse us and renew us and refresh us? Do we not call him Father? So what on earth is James talking about? We will be judged more strictly. I thought judgment was over. I thought we belonged to him. I thought my heart and mind and soul were cleansed. So what is going on here? Well, may I suggest this? Not only does James talk of the reality of judgment, the Apostle Paul writes this, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Well, why would we do that given that we are his children and have been loved and saved by him? For this reason, that when God draws us into a relationship with himself, there is that point of new birth when your eternal salvation is tied up complete and secure forever. But the process of sanctification from that moment when you step out in faith and live your life from that point on, loving him, knowing him, you will be asked on that great final judgment day to account for your sins. And let me explain what I mean. 
not in terms of your salvation, but in terms of your sanctification, where you obedient to his call, where you faithful to his word. Did you live out your faith and relationship with family and friends, folks at work and in your neighborhood? Were you Christ-like in every aspect of your life? That's the question that's being asked. And I have to tell you, that is a moment I am not looking forward to. Because I will need to stand in front of my Savior and tell him how sorry I am for hurting him and neglecting him and marginalizing his love and minimizing his grace in my life. For wounding him and offending him and treating him lightly and casually at times and being disobedient to him. And I will have to give an account. And then once again, he will wrap his arms around me and hold me close and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And my love and my mercy and my grace overwhelms my judgment because my love for you is infinite. And we will get to spend eternity in his presence. It doesn't mean we won't have to account. It doesn't mean we won't have to express sorrow and repentance. But we should never presume. We should never take him for granted. But we must express sorrow and deep abiding shame for our sin. And James says, and you should know better. That's the point James is making right here. And then mercifully, James moves on to horse riding. And he is that master of illustration. And he uses that illustration of the bit of a horse, a small metal piece that fits into the horse's mouth. Now, as you can see, over the last couple of years, I've been trying out horse riding. I have to confess, I'm the world's worst student of horse riding. But quite frankly, just between us, I think I look pretty cool sitting on a horse. I look as if I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm out in the Rockies having a wonderful time. And all I do is sit there and the horse gently moves along. And I gently move on behind him thinking I've conquered everything. And I've mastered the whole thing. Except last July, before going horse riding, I thought I should take a lesson. And I've been on and off horses a little. Very little indeed. And... I was walking around the arena a couple of times, and then we moved to trotting. And the instructor tells you, you count one, two, one, two, one, two. I was counting one, two. My horse was counting three, four. So I was going a little like this. <laughs> and we moved from trotting to loping. 
when the speed goes up a little and sure enough the speed was going up I was thoroughly enjoying every moment of it holding on tightly and I'm coming to the end of the arena and another horse is coming this way and the last thing I remember in fact he was coming this way on my outside the last thing I remember was leaning to my left in order to go to the corner and the next thing I remember is five minutes later when I'm awake outside the arena I came off, landed on my back, hit my head. Thankfully, I had a safety helmet on and I had survived. But the first thing I said when I woke up, I asked Ruth, what day is it? What time is it? Why are we here and where are we? I had lost consciousness. And my point was this. I was going along for the ride but was so far out of control I had no idea what I was doing. And James says the tongue is the same. When that tongue begins to engage and we find ourselves in sinful behavior, we are going along for the ride. We are no longer in control. And next Sunday morning, we're going to get into it in great detail. And in essence, James is saying this. Are you in control of every aspect of your life? How you interact and what you say to those whom you love and those whom you work with. Is your tongue controlling you or are you being Christ-like in the way you interact and converse with others? Last Sunday morning we finished with this point and it's as true today as it was then in terms of belief and behavior. Genuine faith is like calories. You can always see them Excuse me, you can't always see them, but you can always see their results. From belief comes behavior. Behavior. This week, what are you willing to do to become the man or woman God is calling you to be? And just in one area, Ask yourself those fearless searching questions. Am I using my tongue to glorify God or to abuse others? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for its challenge. And help us please never to presume to be that which we are not. Help us to be humble when it comes to ambition. Help us to ask those fearless searching questions about who we are and where we are going in our relationship with you. Father, bless us this week. Take us back into the epistle of James. Speak into our lives. Bring about demolition, but also constructively rebuild us that we might truly belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray.